hear God's word to you this very morning. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. They'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. I. My brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, Apostle Peter was a seasoned saint, if there ever was one. Uh, think about it this way. He walked with Jesus. I mean, I'm just thinking about this, really excited. He walked with Jesus for three years. Uh, he ate with him. He learned from him. He was trained personally by Jesus in the flesh. <laughs> he observed Jesus do all the incredible and miraculous signs. And he saw all firsthand. And as a follower of Christ, one of the very first hand-picked disciples and apostles of Jesus himself, he knew times of great triumph and victory and joy, as well as times of bitter failures and sadness. We read that in the Gospels as well. He knew from experience as well, and this, this was powerful to me as I meditated on this. He knew from experience himself, the loving, empowering, gentle, yet firm, restoring power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his own life. He also knew, by the way, what it felt like to have an unbelieving world punish you for living for and proclaiming the good news of the one who died for us, as Peter puts it, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He also knew, just like you and I know, the, the pull of the flesh, of the sinful nature, the allurements of the world around us, and the temptations of the evil one who roars, who, who uh, roars like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, Peter wants us to see this, and we already know in experience, if we walk with Christ for any amount of time, that this is the one-two combination punch of the world around us. They can't get us to renounce our faith by external abuse. What are they going to do uh, until we cave in? They're going to switch tactics and try to entice us with their ungodly pleasures and sinful ways of escaping the pain and the suffering and the realities of life on this side of glory. That's the one-two punch the world has. Those are the two strings they play on. Persecution or allurement, temptation. Now, the Apostle Peter knew 
that the believers that he was writing to scattered throughout Asia Minor, and what we call now modern Turkey. Um, he knew that this is what they would be facing on a very regular basis. Indeed, this is the battle of all God's people in every age. Now, I can't speak for you this morning. I can only speak for myself. But I would think that if the spokesman of the other 11 original apostles of Jesus wrote us a letter give, giving us Jesus' gospel plan for navigating the trials and the temptations of this world, I'd give my full attention to it. I would treat that letter like it was stinking gold. Well, that's the, the thing is, and, and I like to remind you with these different ways of, of, of understanding it or different perspectives, that that's exactly what we have in front of us this morning, my brothers and sisters. God's plan to take a stand in a foreign land uplifted by his hand. Can I get an amen? That's what we got in this epistle. And as we continue to drink deeply from the gospel truths set forth in this ancient roadmap for elect exiles, remember that's who we are, chosen by God, dearly loved in Christ, we're going to see the Holy Spirit's prescription for arming ourselves against both the world's aggressions and the world's allurements. So remember, this isn't just the Apostle Peter's advice. This is the Holy Spirit's um, exhortation to us as the people of God. Now I remember when I was... Uh, a young believer in Christ, that those days I have a, a, such great memories from when I was a new believer. I hope you do too. Um, but I remember listening to Dr. Tony Evans, um, first African-American to graduate with a doctorate from Dallas Theological Seminary, by the way. Uh, just an awesome uh, brother in the Lord and a great servant of Jesus. But I remember him telling the story or, or the illustration. He said, you know, now for us who like football, American football, maybe you can relate this a little bit. But he says, you know, when, when you play the game of football, if you notice right before the play starts, the, the, the team gets together, the offense, and they do what? They huddle up. Well, what's the huddle for? The huddle is to get everybody on the same page, to encourage one another uh, with, with the, uh, the plan of action. So everybody knows what's going to happen, and this is how we're going to carry it out. And then, of course, they go to the line of scrimmage. But here's the thing that, that Tony Evans says. He says, but the game isn't played until the ball is hiked. In other words, once you say hike, then the real action happens. That's when the war happens. That's when you and the other team clash, mano y mano. And what, what, what Dr. Evans reminded me back then to this day, it's still so true. That's the same thing in the Church of Jesus Christ. When we get together on Sunday mornings, for worship, to, to partake of the means of grace, to encourage one another. What's that? That's the huddle, as it were. That's where we're getting together. We're, we're reading the roadmap, right, together. We're getting on the same page. But when does the real battle take place? It's on Monday morning, so to speak. The whole rest of the week, because that's when we interact with the world. That's when we have the battle. That's when it's what we do, what we say, what we think is going to have an impact in this world. So as we huddle up this morning, I hope, I'm so glad some of you have come and huddled up, even though we're online, as annoying as that can be. Um, as we huddle up to get ready to do battle in the world, as we face, face both the push and the pull of an unbelieving world, we do well to heed the message of 1 Peter 4, 1-6, where we're going to find this. We are strengthened in the fight to resist sin 
by doing two things. This is what Peter's going to tell us. By looking back to Christ's suffering, particularly his attitude toward it, and looking forward to our vindication in the final judgment. Those are the two things. We look back to Christ and his finished work for us, and we look forward to the judgment of Christ, where we're going to find, as believers, vindication for our way of life, the way of the cross. All right, so let's take a look at the two things Peter tells us. It's a two-point sermon, nice, simple, and clean this morning. First one is, uh, we're going to see we need to arm ourselves with the attitude of Jesus. Same attitude as Jesus. That's the first point. Second point, arm yourselves with the knowledge of ultimate vindication. Ultimately, you will be vindicated, my brother, my sister. That's great, great news. So those are two things uh, Peter tells us to meditate on in these six verses. Because we can only take things a chunk at a time uh, for time's sake. So let's take a look at the first one. Arm yourselves with the attitude of Jesus. So what are we to do? Um, it's interesting. I love the words here. Arm yourselves. And that's in the plural. This isn't singular. He's speaking to us as the body of Christ. We're in this together. There's no solo Christian. We don't just sit there and do the song eruption like Eddie Van Halen all alone on, on the stage. As cool as that is. We have to play in the full band belong to one another, we need one another, and we are to arm in the plural ourselves. And, and how do we arm ourselves? We don't arm ourselves with worldly weapons like the world does, like with firearms or swords or even sarcastic language. That's not what we're to arm ourselves with or pay back evil for evil, right? That's how the world arms themselves. But rather, we are to arm ourselves with something in particular, a very specific thing, a deliberate frame of mind or attitude. This is how Peter puts it in verse 1 again. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with what? The same attitude. Because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. See, Jesus suffered, he put sin to death for us. And what Peter is saying is we need to have that same attitude. We're done with sin. We're died. We've died to it. Similar to how Paul puts it in a different way in his epistles, that we've died with Christ. So that's the mindset. That's the attitude we're to have. We're to look back at Christ's example of suffering in his body in the midst of this fallen world, and we're to adopt his attitude as our own attitude. That's where we follow the pattern of the one who won salvation for us. That's where the therefore comes from. P Peter, our Peter, talked about it last week from 1 Peter 3 at the end, speaking about how we are saved, uh, that Jesus died for us, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, and then also that we are saved through what? His resurrection. And now uh, he has ascended on high. He reigns on high. Um, therefore, we are now pattern our lives. It's not just that we trust in him for salvation, which is what Peter says for sure in the other chapters that we have done. But now it's to take that and to literally live by it as a pattern. It saved, he saved our souls, his death and resurrection, and now he provides his death and his resurrection as the pattern we are to walk in, which we need that blueprint. And that's what we're huddling up now. And Pete's saying, okay, step one, follow the pattern of Jesus. In particular, his attitude, his way of thinking. Just as he was willing to suffer for our sakes, this willingness to take whatever abuse the world derives, uh, and, and decides, excuse me, to heap on us because we belong to Jesus, 
Um, this attitude that, that Jesus had, having that in our own hearts and minds, will go a very long way, Peter is saying, in enabling us to resist the pull to go back to our old pagan way of life. That's what Peter's going to be talking about. So in other words, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Chuck Swindoll, a couple illustrations from him this week. Um, another one I used to listen to a lot when I was new in the Lord. I don't know, I was just in a, uh, my early Christian life way of thinking uh, when I prepared for this sermon. Uh, this is what Swindoll once wrote. Love it. He says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. We have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for the day. We can't change our past. We can't change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that's our attitude. I'm convinced, says Chuck, that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Isn't that interesting? You know, we can't change circumstances around us most of the time. But what we can do is we can change our attitudes and have the attitude of Christ toward things. Specifically, I'll read it again. This is it. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because, Peter goes on to say, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he doesn't live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, in choosing to do the will of his Father, Jesus chose suffering over sin. Isn't that interesting? He willingly and even joyfully took whatever pain, whatever exclusion, whatever mockery and suffering he received for doing God's will. In the same way, Peter's saying, when we arm ourselves with the same attitude as our Lord and Master and accept suffering as our lot on this side of glory, we show that we have made a decisive break with sin. We're not sinless, but we sin less. And as Peter puts it, we don't live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. What Peter is saying is simply this. Don't be confused by the way he says things here. He's basically saying suffering for Christ has a way of refining us. It has a way of purifying us and awaking, awaking us from our spiritual slumber. You know, nothing like pain to wake you up. You know, oh, whoa, I was dreaming. Well, I'm not dreaming anymore. Robert Layton puts it this way. Affliction sweetly and humbly earned purifies and disengages the heart from sin, weans it from the world and the ways of the world. That's a good way of putting it. That's why I quoted that. See, when we didn't know Christ, and I could speak from personal experience, we lived for what? Mainly, I don't care what philosophy had, we lived for pleasure. That's what we lived for. We were selfish. That was the end game for us. We lived for evil human desires. That's why Peter's saying is no longer live like the pagans do. The Gentiles do. But when we threw our lot in with Christ, the goal changed. It's no longer pleasure, but you know what the goal is? Doing God's will. And suffering, not sin, often keeps us on that track of doing God's will. 
the, the track of following God's will for his glory, for our own good, ultimately, and for the good of others around us. And we want to be useful to, to our Lord and Savior who gave his life for us. We want to be helpful to our fellow uh, man, especially those who know Jesus and are part of our family through faith in Christ. You should all know by heart by now this verse from Psalm 119, verse 67 from King David that I quote, I've quoted many, many times from this pulpit. Before I was afflicted, David says, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Dr. Lambie was a medical mission to Ethiopia. And this really illustrates Peter's point here well. He crossed uh, in his life many fast-flowing, uh, bridgeless streams while he was living in Africa. And uh, the danger in crossing a stream like that lies in being, you could be swept off your feet, and then you'd be carried downstream into greater depths, or you could be hurled literally to your death against hidden rocks. So Dr. Lambie learned from the people who lived, lived there which, by the way, whenever you minister somewhere, you should be learning from the people that live there. Can I get a witness? But he learned uh, the best way to make such a hazardous crossing. He learned from them. And what the man who was about to cross, what he would do is he would find a large stone, the heavier, the better, and he would lift it to his shoulders, and he would carry it across the stream as a what he calls a ballast. And I looked that up to see what a, a synonym was because I'm like, I don't know what that is. It's a counterweight, something to counterweight you. And the extra weight of the stone keep, will keep your feet solid on the bed of the stream so that you can cross safely without being swept away. And then Dr. Lambie drew this application. And that's where I think it's powerful. He, he wrote this. While crossing the dangerous stream of life, enemies constantly seek to overthrow us and rush us down to ruin. We need the counterbalance of burden-bearing, a load of affliction to keep us from being swept off our feet. Isn't that powerful? So we're strengthened to bear up under suffering by looking back to Christ's suffering and to arm ourselves with the same perspective he had. Better to suffer temporarily um, as we look to our future home and our, in glory then, as we read earlier um, in Hebrews, then enjoy the pleasures of sin for what? A short time. And that really goes with, with the second and uh, last thing we're going to talk about this morning that Peter gives us in our plan to uh, fight the trials and the temptations that the world throws in us. And that is we're to arm ourselves not only with the attitude of Jesus, but also with the knowledge of ultimate vindication and the judgment to come. Uh, verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. They heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. Now, what's the alternative to accepting hardship in its many forms 
uh, for following Jesus. The alternative is to give in to the old lusts and appetites of the flesh. That's the alternative. But Peter says, and it's a good reminder, you spent enough time doing that. You spent enough time living like a pagan, indulging in immorality and, and drowning yourself in drunkenness and idolatry in order to numb the pain of living on this side of glory with its disappointments and its suffering and its trouble. Peter's saying you wasted enough time on that destructive, unproductive behavior that damages others. And remember what he said earlier, wars against your own soul. These things might feel good for a moment, but they end in eternal misery when you live like that as a way of life, unrepentant. And when by the grace of God and for Jesus' sake, we don't plunge with them, unbelievers, in the same flood of dissipation, guess what? They are going to think you're really strange. You're some kind of weirdo. That ain't normal. One of my professors at seminary used to put it this way. Someone who no longer tolerates sin soon finds himself surrounded by people who won't tolerate him. In her book, The Passion, the Pure, Passion and Purity, um, I, I always love this quote, and I'm sure some of you have heard me quote it before, but it's worth repeating again. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot writes this. If a man denies himself comforts, vacations, pleasures with his family, evenings at home, or the free indulgence of whatever appetites he feels, it's usually for money. <laughs> Nobody will worry very much about his being repressive or fanatical or weird so long as money is his motive. It's powerful, right? Because then she says this, if your goal is purity of heart, and we can add staying true to Jesus, be prepared to be thought very odd. She's only reflecting what Peter says right here. They think it's strange, man. That you're not joining with them on that broad road that leads to destruction. Well, how do we bear up under the pressure of the cravings of our own flesh and the abuse of unbelievers? We keep an eternal perspective. Particularly, we look forward to the future judgment that awaits everyone in the future. And that is for the unbeliever... What awaits them is justice, cold, hard justice. And for the believer, what awaits us? Vindication. That's if we're going to sin. Uh, another Chuck Swindoll quote. He gives this illustration. I like this. Once a spider built a beautiful web in an old house. He kept it clean and shiny so that flies would patronize it. The minute he got a customer, I love this, he would clean up on him so the other flies would not get suspicious. <laughs> then one day, this fairly intelligent fly came buzzing by the clean spider web. Old, spy, old man spider cried out, come in and sit. But the fairly intelligent fly said, oh no, sir. I don't see other flies, flies in your house and I ain't going in alone. Something don't seem right. But presently, he saw on the floor below a large crowd of flies dancing around on a piece of brown paper. He was delighted. He was not afraid. 
if lots of flies were doing it, then why shouldn't he? So he came in for a landing, but just before he landed, a bee zoomed by and said, don't land there, stupid. <laughs> That's fly paper. But the fairly intelligent fly shouted back, don't be silly, those flies are dancing. There's a big crowd there, everybody's doing it. That man, many flies can't be wrong. Well, you know what happened, Chuck says. He died on the spot. Some of us want to be with the crowd too badly so that we end up in a mess. What does it profit a fly or a person if he escapes the web only to end up in the grave? Peter reminds us, verse 5, those who heap abuse on us will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So here's uh, Edwin Bloom puts it this way. The coming judgment not only will bring sinners into account, verse 5, but will also reverse the judgments of men, verse 6. Even though pagans might condemn Christians and put them to death, yet in God's judgment there will be a reversal. That, my brothers and sisters, is the Apostle Peter's gospel-shaped plan to fight both the abuse and the allurements from a wicked, unbelieving world. We're looking back to Christ's suffering for our sins and adopting his attitude towards suffering, and we're looking forward to our final vindication when the world's verdict on us will be completely reversed. See, here's the thing. I'm coming to a close here. Now pay attention and stick with me because this is where it's going to pay all your attention. Jesus is coming soon. And you know what, my brother and my sister? He's worth the wait. We've got to remind ourselves that. Because during the week when the flesh is pulling hard, we've got to remember it's he's worth. Not it. He's worth. Saying, no thanks. Pass. Now, this is really uh, helpful to me. It hit me uh, literally early in this morning. I, I still had, hey, I'm going to add this to my sermon because I thought it was really important. Uh, it hit me, and I think it would really help you in a practical way. It helps to, to, to remember this. More often than not, when we say no to one thing, it's because we're saying yes to something else. The devil doesn't want us to remember that. The world doesn't want us to remember that. Even our flesh tries to get us off track. But I'm going to give you an example. So for instance, when I've been saying no to soda, I've been saying no to sweets, I've been saying no to processed foods, that means I'm saying yes to a slimmer waistline. I'm saying yes to healthier organs, internal organs. I'm saying yes to a better blood sugar level. Pete's shaking his head. You know where I'm coming from with this. So I'm not so so I'm not always saying no or being a negative Nancy or living an overly restrictive life. What I'm actually saying is yes to a healthier body, to more energy, to better mental health. And here's the where the analogy connects here. And not plunging with the world into the sinful pleasures of the flesh that Peter listed earlier. We're not we're not saying no to fun or to joy. We're not being a Debbie Downer or living an overly repressive life. We're saying yes to, to a healthier spiritual life. 
We're saying yes to a deeper fellowship, a sweeter fellowship with Jesus, joining in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we're saying yes to literally a physical public vindication before the whole watching world by the Lord Jesus himself. He or she is mine. Because he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. So when we say no to sinful pleasures that are, that are only last a short time anyway, I don't want the world feeling sorry for me. And brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be feeling sorry for each other because we, of all people, have the greatest joy. We have the greatest destiny, the greatest future, and most of all, a relationship with the great God, the only God, through the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So my brothers and sisters, as we finish up this morning, I want to exhort you to keep your eyes on the prize. And that's what we're going to sing about together um, as our hymn of application. I do want to say this, and then we'll pray. I think for some of us, we need to come to terms with the fact that um, if it always, if the Christian life just seems like a drudgery, and it seems like so hard to, 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 to say no to sin and yes to Jesus, well, maybe we need to think seriously about whether or not we've ever really come to know. You know, sometimes, well, I'm struggling. Yeah, I'm trying. Now, look, the Christian life is a struggle, but sometimes what we mean by that is not that. Sometimes the struggle is more of complete failure constantly. Not getting out of the mud and mire at all. Forget about falling and getting back up. And that's where you find yourself this morning. You come just as you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you, if you really do that and trust him, you will not walk away the same as you came. Your struggles won't be over, but they'll be redeemed. And when we do suffer, it'll have a much higher and awesome purpose. Can I get a witness? Let's pray. Father, we do want to keep our eyes on the prize. We do help us to remember not just Sunday mornings when we're hooting and hollering and singing and praising, but uh, during the week when we're alone, when we're with people that are pressuring us, uh, wherever we might be, help us to remember these things, Lord. To remember you, Jesus, and your attitude towards suffering. Um, and, and to also remember that when, when you come again, those who heap abuse on us and who continue to do it without repenting, Lord, that they will be judged and we will be vindicated. Lord, help us to live by these gospel truths as we put our full trust, not in anything we could do ever, but in the finished work of, of your finished work. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.